Coming up on this week's The Outlaw Lawyer, Josh and I will talk about a lot of common questions we get as attorneys. We'll talk about some recent COVID-19 developments, and we will also give you some information about what to ask when you're searching for an attorney. Coming up. And now. The Supreme Court has said unanimously. This was wrong. Fact-based. Your belief at the time doesn't necessarily jive with what the actual law is. Reasonable. Informative. Now, if you take in facts and you think about them and you don't jump to a instant opinion, you're the outlaw. And now. Outlaw Lawyer with Josh Whitaker. Welcome to this week's The Outlaw Lawyer. You're dialed in. Me and Joseph T. Hamer are here with you today. I'm Josh Whitaker. We are the partnering attorneys of Whitaker and Hamer. Joe, how you doing? I'm doing great, Josh. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm fine. I feel like we do every show that way. I think we need to make a note that we talk about stuff more no man i think we start with that it's important to know, it's important to know how we're doing the, and i'm doing great as a reminder here at the outlaw lawyer we are here to talk to you about legal items uh that we think are important we sometimes we pull news items that we think could use the uh attention of two attorneys sometimes we pull supreme court cases sometimes we share some common questions we get as attorneys um but we try to we try to talk to you about the law statutes uh cases um that's what that's what we do that's what me and joe do every day that's how we make our money we are practicing attorneys here in the state of north carolina sometimes we talk about absolutely nothing sometimes we do that from a legal perspective (laughs) so this week i'm still you know we're not really talking about it from a legal perspective but just as i guess just as businessmen in the area you know we're seeing the COVID 19 numbers uh, go up. We talked a little bit about school mask last time. This week, me and me and Joe. It seems like every week we just did something together. We were at Monster Jam. And we do a lot of things together, including this radio show, which may it may be my favorite uh, of all the things. Second only to Monster Jam. I have not been to Monster Jam in a long time, but I I don't know what happened to Bigfoot. Bigfoot was it, man. What about was? Am I imagining? Was there a Bone Crusher and they changed him to Stone Crusher? No, no, I think there was... Has so it always I, been Stone Crusher? So when I was growing up, there was Bigfoot, and that's all. that was like Hulk Hogan, man. Bigfoot was all that mattered. More so than Gravedigger? Yeah, Gravedigger wasn't around. Gravedigger was like the up-and-comer ah. when I was growing up. But Bigfoot's just gone, and I didn't do any research on this, but he wasn't there. There was no mention of Bigfoot. There was no Bigfoot merchandise. I'm going to send a request to our scientists uh, to, in the lab to take a look at what happened to Bigfoot. It was all Gravedigger, man. That's all they. That's all they care about now. Yeah, Gravedigger really took over. Uh, had a great showing at the uh, at the Monster Jam, and um, I tell you what, man, my kids very much enjoyed it. I did. The kids, the kids liked it. I uh, I couldn't help notice though, and the reason I'm bringing this up is this is the Joshua. I have breaking news: <laughs> Bigfoot ceased running events for the Monster Jam series in 1998 due to due to a dispute over licensing of video footage and pictures and has not returned since oh man yeah man they should tell you that before you buy your ticket yeah so you went in expecting bigfoot you got no bigfoot but you still had a good time i did i did i saw you cheering the cars on the the thing that's remarkable to me and again you know i'm not a big mask guy but it was interesting to me you're hearing all the bad news and maybe people are just tired of it you know i get that but there was a lot of people there not a lot of masks not a lot of masks. There were like there was gravedigger masks that you'd get when you bought your <laughs> cotton candy, uh, but I don't think they had any therapeutic value. I don't think they were blocking any pathogens. But yeah, not 
it's very very few masks whole lot of people man people people love monster jam that's what i have discovered well this uh you know this friday i think is uh stapleton so we're recording this prior to 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 air um so hopefully stapleton doesn't get caught off because i'll be very sad so if you're listening to this saturday at four on 1061 um and i stapleton got canceled i'll be very sad that day yeah, unfortunately, it's it's funny. I remember we, we've talked a lot about COVID on the show just because it's a prevalent topic like every single week. And I remember we were very optimistic the last time we talked about it. Everything was getting back to normal. Everything was looking good. And I, I think we jinxed it. I think we are the cause of the <laughs> Delta variant with our optimism and our discussion of things returning back to normal. I'm telling you, man, this year we went, you know, we missed all the live stuff. So we got state basketball, we got state football, we got concert tickets, like any monster jam, like anything we can go to, we're going to it. And I've decided if it gets canceled, like I'm still just going to I'm the go- venue. Yeah, I'm going to go to the venue and, and tell like, your kids to use their imagination. Tailgate, do something. You just make the noise of the monster jam trucks. And just... But I wonder, it's different. You know, I saw today, I, I don't know that all the numbers, but I know today when I looked at everything, it was the worst it's been since February. It's been like every day, it's been the worst it's been since X period of time. And on a, it seems like it's a, a bad progression. And I'm one of the people that are really happy not to hear from Governor Cooper. I didn't, I didn't enjoy hearing him every couple of weeks, limiting us more. I don't think we should be limited. I think people should have information and you should figure out what's best for you and, and figure out what you need to do to protect yourself. I don't think we need Governor Cooper closing our bars, you know, doing stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it's tough, man. And, and we'll talk more about this in the segment and we're going to kind of narrow this discussion down because this is a broad discussion and we're talking kind of in generalities right now. And we're going to kind of try to look at more specific legal based questions i'd say Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah man it's it's interesting and it's interesting how things have fluctuated and how again we were in that period of of kind of hopeful optimism all signs seem to indicate it's a downward progression i think we still need to be optimistic joe i think that's the only way to go i I feel like our optimism again jinxed us so i'm gonna be (laughs) overwhelmingly pessimistic and hope I can reverse the course of the jinx. So we, we're going to talk about COVID a little bit. And then we got two things that we talk about a lot in our practice over at Whitaker and Hamer. So I'd we, say they're common questions. We have a few common questions. So we got we get a call. Uh, a lot of times we get a call, we get a consult where someone has hired a contractor to do some type of work. That contractor either doesn't finish, doesn't get started, takes some money and runs, or does a really bad job. And we end up having a contract law consult and uh so I figured that might be something that folks out there are going through or have been through, and that might be worth a talking about. I, I totally agree. That's an extremely, extremely common question. Um, another extremely, extremely common question we get, we're in a crazy, crazy real estate market right now. We, in our individual practices, we see that a lot. Uh, we do a, a lot of real estate transactional work, and it's a crazy market. And one thing you're going to see a lot of right now is exceedingly high due diligence fees that are being paid in connection with these contracts. And we get the question a lot of times, what are the ramifications of that payment? Is it refundable? When is it refundable? How does that work? So I think it's going to be good to go ahead and talk about some of the nuances around that and answer, again, some of the common questions we get. Yeah, due diligence on, uh, you know, so we're talking in, uh, in the context of an offer to purchase contract. Due diligence is relatively a new uh, development in North Carolina law to begin with, and now it's really taking on some new, uh, I guess, new dynamics here with the 
the crazy, crazy, crazy real estate market we find ourselves in. It's a crazy, crazy, crazy. I think three crazies is the appropriate number of crazies. But it is. It's nuts, man. It's unprecedented. We hear people say that all the time. Uh, it's very difficult to navigate for a lot of people. But the one kind of commonality that we do see a lot of is just record high due diligence fees being paid in connection with these contracts. And it's, it's, something, it's something that we get asked a lot. And then I thought it'd be I thought it'd be a good idea if, if me and Joe kind of went over some of the questions when you're looking to hire an attorney. Some of the questions we think as attorneys you should be asking your attorney or your potential attorney, I guess. That's that's right. So obviously we would first say just you know we encourage you to to contact our law firm, the right, law firm of right. Whitaker and Hamer. Uh, but again, it's really going to be kind of generalized advice for anybody who's looking for an attorney, uh, kind of designed to vet that attorney things that will clue you in and that can kind of give you a better idea of what you're going to get from this person to get a better feel for them and their practice and just the important things to look for when you're kind of shopping around or, or looking for an attorney i tell you joe that took me a while you know you had to reach a certain age go through a certain amount of stuff to realize like you know, I used to think if you went to the doctor, that doctor would tell you the same thing that any other doctor would. I thought if you went to a lawyer, that lawyer would tell you the same thing any other lawyer would. That's not the case. Not every lawyer is is equal. Not every doctor is equal. Um, it's it's there's there's questions to ask and there's reasons to ask them. And we're gonna give you those questions for free to ask. <laughs> the, uh, we're gonna arm you with knowledge. We um, who won, who won at Monster Jam? Who was the overall winner? It was Gravedigger, and not only was it Gravedigger, but 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 mis- I will just call him Mister Gravedigger, the guy who drove right. Gravedigger. No disrespect to this gentleman, fantastic driver, a lot of energy on the microphone. We should get him on the show. Um, I'm sure a fan of the show. I'm sure. Um, but Gravedigger won, and he came out and he actually said he's undefeated in Raleigh, never lost in Raleigh ever in the history of vehicles. Who was the guy that looked like a Halo vehicle? Yeah, uh, Black Ops. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that guy should win. Yeah, that guy, cra- he crushed his car early on. <laughs> Spoiler alert for anybody <laughs> who hasn't caught the Monster Jam replay. Um, you know what? Crushed I s- his car. Yeah, you get bonus points for that. Yeah, and he was fine. He recovered from but it. But Gravedigger at the end rolls his car. So he uh, he one upped him. Yeah. I don't, I didn't look like he broke an axle or something. It was fantastic. More things should break during Monster Jam. That's my philosophy. So Joe and I, we are partners with Whitaker and Hamer. Whitaker and Hamer, we want you to know, has offices in Raleigh, Garner, Clayton, Fuquay Verena, and Goldsboro. Um, so we're spread out here over the Wake, Johnston, Harnett, Wayne County area. So um, always happy to help you. We have uh, eight attorneys um, can help you with a wide variety of things. If you need to get in contact with us here at the Outlaw Lawyer or me and Joe and our in our in our day-to-day nine-to-five lives as attorneys you can reach us at 1-800-659-1186 and joe there's been a new development with our phone number i believe that's right josh we've uh had our scientists in the lab working hard tirelessly several hours uh researching plugging numbers putting in formulas and we now have the capability for you to just text us your questions so for anyone a lot of our younger crowd don't enjoy making a call, leaving a voicemail. Shoot us a text with your questions. Same number. Uh, through the magic of the Internet, we will get that question, and we will be happy to respond to you guys. Ask us about anything legal. Ask us about Monster Jam. Tell us who your favorite Monster Jam participant was. We'd love to hear that. 
So that's 1-800-659-1186. You can still email us questions. That's plural, questions at theoutlawlawyer.com. And then we live on Facebook and Twitter as theoutlawlawyer.com. All right, Joe, I think it's time for a break. Your contractor didn't finish your job. What are you going to do about it? We'll talk about it next. It seems like every week, at least once a week, I get uh, a kind of, I call it a business law, a contract consult, but we get a client calling in and they have hired a contractor who has not either one, not finished a job, not started a job, done the job, but didn't complete it, is asking for more money. There's all kinds of scenarios where we have a client who is dissatisfied with some sort of contractor. That's right. That's accurate. Uh, It's a question we all get a lot of time as attorneys. I've basically come to the conclusion that like maybe 6% of contractors are out there completing their jobs. Um, and, and we get it a lot. It's something we see a lot of times and it's a very common, what we would call fact pattern in the legal world. So I think it's good that we talk about it and just kind of talk about the situation and, and see what you can do in that situation. So the fact pattern we get most of the time is we got a client who has hired a contractor to do some sort of remodel, kitchen remodel, bath remodel, build a deck, So you've got a contractor. Usually they've been referred to you by a friend, a family. Sometimes it's a website. I know Home Depot and Lowe's usually have programs where they can refer you out to somebody. And so you got a a guy, a contractor who comes out and quotes you for the job, gives you like a written estimate. And then, you know, maybe you you have a couple you look at. You've selected one. Um, A lot of times there's no contract. That's something we're going to get into. So a lot of times this contractor doesn't have a contract. And you don't have a contract, and so maybe you sign their written estimate. Maybe they got a signature spot on there with some basic payment terms, like half up front, or something like that. And um, and so a lot of times the contractor, you know, and not not to besmirch all contractors, but sometimes the ones, the people that call me, the contractors taking the money, and they haven't shown up, or only one guy's shown up, or a sub shows up but hasn't gotten paid and leaves, and so there's some. There's something there's something not going right, and so the client has called us because they either want to be able to fire the contractor, get their money back, um, and that's that's kind of where they come to us at. And I think dovetailing nicely into our uh, future in this episode COVID segment, a lot of contractors, a lot of businesses in general, especially contractors right now, there is a labor shortage as a result of COVID, and so that is. It might be one reason why we're seeing an uptick in in these types of questions, because there really has been kind of an uptick here lately. A lot of folks having difficulty getting these things completed. And I guess the the first question is, like you said, Josh, is there a contract? So when people call us, it's kind of after the fact. and, And usually I find there isn't a contract. And if we're lucky enough to have a contract, it's one that somebody pulled off the Internet that maybe was drafted for use in arizona or some other state you know it's always always bad practice to pull a contract or any other legal document from the internet go get your medical advice from there all day long i recommend googling when you have a headache or some other ailment but definitely not your legal advice yeah that was a big you know we've talked about that before that but that was a big thing you know when legal zoom i think maybe legal zoom whatever the first website got created you know that created a lot of issues with the local bars and you know, everybody's all for self-help, but you really haven't helped yourself if the document you've downloaded or the document you've been given doesn't fit your needs, you know. Exactly. And there's 
there's a lot of various scenarios and situations that a boilerplate pre-prepared contract really can't do for you. And like you said, it may not be state-specific. It may not be tailored to the laws of your area. There's a lot of potential pitfalls that you can get by relying on that internet contract and not consulting with an actual licensed attorney. So always, that's step one. Let's go back in time for this, this hypothetical. Consult with an attorney or at least ensure that you've got a valid contract presented to you that you don't create yourself off of the internet. And, you know, it's the thing where this is usually a decent amount of money, right? If you're if you're having someone remodel your kitchen, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars at least probably. This is the kind of thing where you probably need the, the advice of an attorney. And most attorneys aren't going to charge a lot for giving you advice on, on this kind of issue. This isn't how we're uh, financing our trips to Monster Jam or anything like that. No, we're, that's com- that's our own dollar. <laughs> the uh, but yeah, so I'm going to assume, you know, in this fact pattern that I see the most, one, we don't we don't have a contract. And if we do, it's not really applicable to our situation. It doesn't talk about what happens when one side breaches, right? Because that's what you've that's what this client is saying. They're saying their contractor in some form has breached a contract and we don't have a written contract. So what we've got is probably a, a he said, she said we have a verbal contract or a handshake deal or, or something like that to go on. I like that. A he said, she said. That's what we're going to call it. So you've got a he, he said, she said. Uh, so, so where do you go from there? So, you know, it's, 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 it's case by case. So I usually will ask you, well, how much money you know, have you given this contractor? Because um, most contractors, again, they're very, again, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm bad-mouthing contractors. If you're a good contractor, dude, this doesn't apply to you. We That's love right. you. <laughs> but the bad ones you know, tend not to have a lot to get at, right? So if you've, given, if you've given them 25 grand to buy materials and get started on the first half of your project, then they never show back up again. Getting that twenty five thousand dollars back is not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, I think we call that a judgment proof defendant. Basically, it's a it's an individual that you can pursue litigation against. You could pursue a judgment, and you, in all likelihood, could win that judgment. But when someone's judgment proof, like you said, there's nothing there for you to get at. What good is a judgment going to do against someone who owns? literally nothing and has nothing for you to attach to has no real property has no way for you to realize that Uh, so a lot of times that's one of the the main considerations and unfortunately when you're dealing with a contractor that isn't showing up to jobs a lot of times they are the very people who are judgment proof yeah so you're when you come to talk to an attorney that's one of the first things i always like to be very honest with people because no one you know i'm an attorney but i still don't want to pay attorney fees if i don't have to you know and so we kind of look at what you've lost you know did he leave some materials there do you have, you know, what, what are you willing to take a loss on? And then we kind of, we can look at who you're trying to litigate against, who you're trying to sue. We can try to figure out, you know, what they own, but, but in the end you'll be paying an attorney legal fees. Attorneys don't litigate these type of situations for free. Uh, most attorneys, I don't think would take this on a contingency basis. So you're going to be laying out some attorney fees to pursue litigation for any money that you're out of. That's right. And and what would you say, Josh, is the relevance of whether these contractors or are licensed or bonded? Is there any benefit there? Can you feel good about someone if they're licensed or bonded, or is that not the be all end all? Well, if they if you know if you've got a license, if you know your contractor is licensed, then you at least have an avenue where you could file a complaint with that board. So if, if someone if someone's got a license, that means they've got something to protect, right? It's not just a guy off the street who doesn't care if you sue him. You've got someone who has a license. They need that license to earn their living. And if you if they really do you wrong and you file a complaint 
uh, that's something that's going to get a lot of attention. And you don't need an attorney to do that. No, no, absolutely not. The Better Business Bureau is, <laughs> you see that threatened several times. And there's a lot of people who really take that seriously, too, especially contractors that, that you know, a lot of their clients are looking to that. So, so what if you do have a contract? What if you're not in this situation where it's a he said, she said? Well, if you're in a con- if somebody has prepared a contract for this situation, then we know what's going to happen, right? We, we probably had a completion date in there. We had a payment schedule. We probably encourage you not to give half of the the money up front, maybe just get materials or something like that. So you've got a maybe you're not out as much money. Um, we know we can say firmly, hey, we have a written contract. You agree to do this. You haven't done it. You're in breach. And then I like to add, you know, there's something called a liquidated damages clause. I like to put in there what your damages will be. You know, if you have to, if the if they're in breach and you have to go find another contractor and you have to do this and you have to do that, I like to go ahead and figure out ahead of time what damages are going to be. So if you have to sue the other party, you already know what damages are. That's a big part of litigation when you go in. You can tell the judge, you know, you can put on evidence as to what damages you've suffered, what damages you think you need to be awarded, but a judge may not agree with you. Um, so if you have a liquidated damages clause and you guys have already agreed, hey, look, if I have to do this, it's going to cost me at least ten grand. So if you breach, you owe me ten grand. Yeah, and that gives you certainty because without that, the, there's a lot of uncertainty. And you really, you really have to ask yourself the question, how much, how much money am I willing to spend litigating to get X amount back? There's like a sliding scale there where you have to really analyze the cost and the, and the, the benefit of pursuing whatever it is that you're pursuing and there's going to come a tipping point in that and litigation can be expensive and we can sometimes not predict how hard you're going to get resistance from the other side so there's a lot of unknowns there so and and a lot of times that's a lot of money that can go into actually getting this job completed by a competent contractor so so what if this contractor josh is felt he is owed money and that's why he's not completing the job what can he do there what if he files a lien sometimes you run into a situation where you believe your contractor has has breached your agreement handwritten handshake you know whatever it may be Um, but there's some room there for both sides to have kind of different beliefs and what's going on because it's not written down so if you're if your contractor's not showing up because he thinks he's owed something and you fire him or you go with someone else you know a contractor can always in north carolina file a lien on your property uh, for what he thinks he's owed. And that's very easy to do. By nature, it's very easy to do. And so what? talk to me about timetables that are involved in that. So a uh, contractor who did work on your house and dealt with you directly, they have up to 120 days to file a lien um, from the day they last did real work. Not showed up and talked to you or showed up and moved materials around, but the last day they did real work, they've got 120 days where they could file a lien. And so then there, there would be a lien on your property. Um but there's a trick to it. Within 180 days, they have to file a lawsuit. We attorneys call that a lawsuit to perfect the lien. And so if they don't do that, then the lien is just not good. And I think another thing that's important to mention, Josh, we, we obviously encourage everyone to you know consult with an attorney where needed. And in a situation like this where you're dealing with a lot of money, of course, that would be the very situation that we recommend that. But you've also got small claims court, and you can actually pursue remedies in small claims court without an attorney. In some situations, that's going to be the route to go. You know, if, you're, if you've got a smaller amount in dispute, that may be something that you want to look into. And it's something that you can kind of do on a self-help basis to an extent as well. Yeah, I would imagine anytime you're looking at suing suing someone, you know, you're you're looking at 
you know, you're not looking at hundreds, you're looking at probably thousands of, of dollars in, in legal fees. Most attorneys who know what they're doing aren't going to litigate for beans. And uh, if you're a big do-it-yourselfer and it's a smaller amount of money, small claims is something that's designed for you to do on your own. So uh, kind of wrapping this all up, Josh, uh, I think uh, what I would say to the person who asked this question for the next time that they, they could potentially run into this or they're having some work done, just like you told me when I was a young recreation league basketball player, the best offense is a good defense. And I think it's very important that you do your research, you get something in writing, you make sure you've got a valid contract. And in a perfect world, that would be a written contract that gives detailed explanations of the scope of work and the payment schedule and take any of the guesswork out of it. Take the he said, she said out of it. Absolutely. Um, again, if we can do anything for you, if you if you have this situation, I know you're out there. People are out there with that situation because they're calling us. Uh, but the number is 1-800-659-1186. You can call or, I guess, text us now. Um, questions at theoutlawlawyer.com, but we'd be happy to help. The real estate market is bananas right now. We're going to talk a little bit about due diligence fees and the ramifications of that due diligence payment in connection with a real estate closing. We're back on the Outlaw Lawyer. You're here with Josh Whitaker and Joe Hamer of Whitaker and Hamer PLLC. Um, if you want to reach us at the law firm, you want to reach the show. Again, our number is 1-800-659-1186. That's 1-800-659-1186. You can get us by phone or text. Um, again, Whitaker and Hamer has offices in Raleigh, Clayton, Garner, Goldsboro, Fuquay, Verena. More to come. More to come, yeah. coming to coming to a city near you. But we're always happy to help you. If you give us a call, we're always happy to set up a consult, uh, have one of our attorneys reach out to you, figure out what's going on. We want to be a legal resource for our listeners. We want to be helpful to our listeners. That's why we do this. And on that front, today we want to spend some more time talking. Well, we've talked about this before, but it's been a couple of shows back, and it was a different context. But due diligence, and we're specifically talking about if you are a buyer or seller of, of real property in the market right now, as we said, is crazy and or bananas. It's, it's a seller's market right now. There's not a lot of inventory. Uh, buyers are really having to go above and beyond to set themselves apart from the other 20, 30, 40 offers sellers are getting on their homes when they list them. It's crazy. It is crazy. The real estate market is a seller's market in, in very many ways. And, and like you said, it's bananas. You got sellers that are getting anything and everything. They're, people are offering crazy things to them, including astronomically high due diligence fees. Well, Joe, I think it's important to kind of so due diligence hasn't been around uh, hasn't been around that long in, in North Carolina. So due diligence when it started, you know, so you pay a due diligence fee as part of this contract, and what you're doing is you're paying as a buyer, you're paying for a period, a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever the seller may agree to. You're paying for a period where you do your inspections and then you can terminate that contract for any reason. Exactly. And, and essentially, in addition to paying for really the right to inspect the property, you're, you're also, in a way, compensating that seller for removing that property from the market as well. And so to truly talk about due diligence, we also have to talk about earnest money. And so earnest money, an earnest money deposit has been part of a real estate contract for a long time. It's part of the consideration for the contract. And back in the day before due diligence, you would just offer 
you know, depending on how much the house costs and what you are up against, I would say you put ten thousand, five thousand dollars down as as earnest money. And um, completely unrelated, but one of my favorite things that happens to us is we get emails from agents and they refer to earnest money, like earnest, E R N E S T, like earnest, <laughs> scared, stupid. The, yeah. Anyways, I like that a lot when it happens. The uh, so it's it's earnest E A R uh, that kind of earnest money, but so that's that's consideration on the contract. So people used to put like I don't know when due diligence first came around, people were putting like fifty dollars down as due diligence, and then you could cancel. But you get if you cancel during your due diligence period that you paid fifty bucks for, you lose your fifty bucks, but you get your five thousand dollars in earnest money back. So it was kind of a way where you could get out of the contract and and not worry about losing all of your earnest money. Yeah, and you know, we could go into an extremely lengthy discussion about consideration and what actually makes a contract a contract and the validity of contracts. That's a whole very, very boring episode that we could pull out to punish our listeners if we really wanted to. But yeah, I think you said it, and, and I think that's a very good summary that we could kind of use as a jumping off point for this discussion. But it's nuts right now. We we saw a due diligence payment of $168,000 the other day. And so what happens when you do that? So you've made this jump now. So now due diligence is no longer, you're not buying a due diligence period to protect yourself anymore because you're not going to exercise it, right? So if you put $168,000 down on the house's due diligence, I can't imagine there's anything you would find doing your inspections that you'd be willing to terminate the contract and lose your due diligence fee of $168,000. It- I, that's that's a good point. Uh, and the counter argument, I guess, is if you if you're putting one hundred and sixty eight thousand down as due diligence, maybe it's not maybe it's not that much money to you. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe so. No, it's a lot of money. <laughs> so even to the people that it's not a lot of money to. That's a, it's a lot of money. And you're right. It's you're you're not forfeiting the ability to to perform your due diligence that you could otherwise perform. But like you said, what what would have to be there to make you forfeit that? So, so due diligence was originally started as a way to protect you, right, as the buyer, a way to protect you so you could get out of the contract, not lose your much more hefty earnest money. But now earnest money is taking this back seat. And so sellers, and I would do the same thing if, if I had 40 offers on my house and somebody had offered 168000 in due diligence fee, I know that guy or lady is not walking away from that contract. It's like a shiny thing that you're you're waving in front of the sellers. You're trying to make yourself look pretty, and you're like, "Pick me!" And, Pick and people, me. it's one hundred sixty-eight thousand, <laughs> and people do it, and 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 it's understandable on both sides. I get why a buyer would do it. I get why a seller would do it. The I'm mar- selling to that person that's going to pay me one hundred sixty-eight thousand dollars. <laughs> the market has has kind of forced everybody's hand, and uh, but it, it, it's just you know the more. So here's the call we get. We get a call from a, we get calls from buyers who have found pretty sizable defects and um you know they were like hey what do we what do we do here can we negotiate can we you know what what do we do from here and the answer is be poor yeah the answer is not not a lot you know like you're you know it it, you know so the conversation we get in is kind of you know it's it's all dependent on what defect you found you know the seller has to make some disclosures in a residential real estate transaction what did they disclose should this have been a material fact? I mean, you almost have to catch the sellers actively hiding something to really have much of an argument from a legal perspective, it, it would seem. Yeah, and I think simplifying that, you, you really have to have some form of material breach. You've got to have some breach of the contract, and it, and it has to be, there's got to be some element of dishonesty. There's a fairly high bar there. And 
it's it's not something that you're going to see very frequently. It's not something that you see a lot where you've got people that are doing these deliberate things that would trigger that release of the due diligence funds. And in addition to that, your due diligence isn't going into an escrow account. It's not going to sit there like your earnest money generally is going to go into an escrow account where a third-party fiduciary is holding it. And if you terminate and you are due release of that, you're, you know, everyone's signing a release to release those funds. It's coming from that third party. The due diligence is paid directly to your seller. They've got that money. And the only way to get that back, you can ask them nicely. Sure, you can ask them, but you're going to have to sue and you're going to have to litigate to get that money back at the end of the day if they take a hardline stance. Yeah, that's a good point. And it goes back to what due diligence was originally supposed to be. You know, it went straight to the seller. It went in the seller's price. It still does. It goes in the seller. The earnest money goes to your settlement agent. So if Whitaker and Hamer was your closing, your settlement agent, your closing attorney, we would be holding the earnest money and we can't legally release that earnest money until all parties have agreed. There's some exceptions, but usually all the parties have to agree all right, we've terminated the contract. It's this person's fault. The earnest money should go here. And so that earnest money is safe. Your $168,000 in due diligence went straight to your seller. It's in their bank account. And most people aren't just voluntarily giving that money back. And guess what, Josh? You don't have $168,000 to spend on attorney's fees <laughs> to get your $168,000 back. What, honestly, what would it take for you to, to terminate a contract that you've put down 168000 in due diligence? Oh, yeah. I don't think I would. I if think, it's a murder house, you'd still buy it. I think the worst case is you just turn around and sell it. You know, The yeah, way our market yeah. is, you'll probably make a profit if Maybe you Maybe you'll get $169,000 in due diligence from your next buyer. <laughs> but no, it's just, it's just it's crazy to me. We do a lot of real estate transaction. We do a lot of contract law. But it, it's just I was thinking about that this week, how due diligence went from something to protect the buyer to pretty much something that just entices a seller. It's like the main selling point. It's That's what it's being used as. And it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing because, like you said, you get to a high enough point to where you're almost forfeiting the ability to back out of it at that point. And that's, and that's why, I guess... But it's that's the nature of the market. And if you want some of these properties, these hot properties, you kind of have to play ball. And that's the game that a lot of people are playing. So I think to, to kind of summarize what the answer is to the person who's asking, what can I do to get my due diligence fee that I have paid back? There's not a whole lot. It's really nothing that you can necessarily affirmatively do. You're going to be looking at some form of activity or failure to disclose or breach or some concealment of a material fact on the seller's part that's going to trigger your ability to not automatically get that back. Because again, you're not going to automatically get it back in any situation, but you're going to be able to forcefully ask for its release or sue and eventually litigate for the release of those funds yeah i'm waiting to see i hadn't seen a lot of and i'm surprised i, I kind of keep my eye on on litigation of this type of thing and i haven't seen any big cases uh come up on on trying to i mean sue the seller for fraud concealing a material fact doing something like that to try to get this this dd back i guess most people are just going through with the sell even if they find something that causes them great concern i think you said it and if you get up to that point and you're willing to pay that amount i mean it would have to be some insanely ridiculous defect i can't personally think of it i'm trying to think of a hypothetical <laughs> like what would have to be like there's a curse on this house and I, if my family steps foot in it i was be haunted for generations I was, maybe I, I, my mind went right to some kind of scooby-doo yeah you know, plot twist that would have to happen for us to to back out of something there like needs to that. be a scooby-doo due diligence uh episode with the gang all right we're gonna take a break we'll be right back covid19 things were looking good things now appear to be looking bad next
are back. It's Josh Whitaker and Joe Hamer here with you on the Outlaw Lawyer. Uh, I like to remind everybody, we are licensed attorneys and uh, only here in North Carolina. So in North Carolina, me and Joe are licensed attorneys. We are owners of the law firm of Whitaker and Hamer. Um, It's a law firm with offices in Raleigh. We're up there near North Hills in Raleigh and Garner. We're on Highway 70 right after you leave, kind of right out of downtown near Hammond Road. I'll take this one in Clayton. <laughs> We're on Main Street and Fayetteville, yeah. right beside Boulevard West and the paper company. Yeah. Goldsboro, we're over on uh, Ash Street, um, right outside of downtown. We used to be on Center Street. We just moved over to Ash. And then if you quave arena, we're right on uh, 401, right at, kind of right in the middle of downtown, like right after kind of the, what I would call the new part of town as you're going into old downtown. So a we're, fantastic location for a law firm. It is. It is a fantastic location. So those are our offices. We've got eight eight attorneys all ready to help anytime they can. So if you need to call us or you need to contact the show, you get us at 1-800-659-1186. That's 1-800-659-1186. So that line is set up to take a, a message. So if you call it, uh, make sure you leave good contact information with your message so we can get back in touch with you, have the right people reach out to you. Um, you can also text that number now. So if you want to send us a message, you can text 1-800-659-1186. As always, you can email us at questions at theoutlawlawyer.com. We are, our website is theoutlawlawyer.com, so all of our archived episodes live there. Um, and you can also reach out to us on social media on Twitter and Facebook, we are the Outlaw Lawyer. And we love to hear from you guys. We encourage each and every one of you listening right now, text us, call us, email us, do literally do all three of those things. We want to hear what interests you. We want to talk about what you would like us to talk about. We're happy to answer your questions, and we're happy to help you with any kind of legal issue that you have as well. If you've got just some general thoughts on the show, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, We just love to hear from you guys, and we love to interact with you in any way we can. Well, I'll tell you, Joe, one of the reasons we do this show is because we do, you know, me and Joe running the law firm, we end up behind our desk or in the courtroom. Like, we're not usually during the week just sitting around doing nothing. And so this is kind of, for us, this is kind of an outreach to get out from behind our desk and and let people know we are here. We, We are here. We are alive. The smoke signals coming from my office indicate, yeah, we're here. And it's been great. I very much enjoy getting the chance to talk about things from a legal perspective with you, Josh Whitaker. Well, I appreciate it, Joseph. But what are we going to talk about now? We're going to talk about COVID. Again, we we talk about COVID a lot, but but honestly, how do you not talk about COVID a lot? It's it's very much an ever-present issue in our society. And we've talked about a few different angles of COVID. We've talked about mandating the vaccine. Uh, We've talked about just pretty much every angle that you can look at. And we're kind of circling back around to this idea of vaccine passports and requiring some kind of proof of vaccination. We speculated that it may be something that becomes more prevalent. And it sounds like in certain areas of the country, it is actually becoming more prevalent now, and it's becoming a thing that we're seeing more and more of, uh, with New York being the, the number one example I can think of of that for the time being. Yeah, Joe, and I don't, you know, as an attorney, you know, you know what HIPAA laws require and you know what you can disclose. And I, you know, I've got my vaccination card. And so I went to, the, I think I may have said this before, but I went to the doctor and got my, my vaccine. 
and the, it was blank, right? They were doing so many vaccines that day. They had filled in that I got the shot and what date, and they were like, here's your card. Fill it out, you know, put your whatever you need to, because I fill out my own name and social. But that card, man, that would be easy to... That doesn't to, sound very fancy at all. <laughs> that card would be easy to to, re, to reproduce, you know? So I, I keep wondering what, what it would what it would look like, you know, as like a designation on your driver's license. Cause I think it's, you know, I guess we could have a conversation on legally what can be required and what can't be required. But, um, and I, you're talking about when you say what can and what can't be required, you have to make the distinction between private individuals and businesses, what they're going to require. And then what is going to be required for access to public areas and what restrictions that the government's potentially going to impose. And, you know, we've talked about it a little bit before, and we, we talk a lot about in the in when we've discussed it, protected classes and discrimination based on some kind of protected class. And that's where you're going to start running into some issues and some scrutiny, and you can't discriminate on certain bases. But I don't know that vaccination status is a protected basis upon which you cannot discriminate against. No, no. I think if you're a private business, for sure, you can. Uh, you see it already happening. I, uh, there was someone in the news. I don't remember what the restaurant was downtown, but they were requiring proof of vaccination before you came in to the restaurant. Which I guess would probably. I would. I. You know, I've been vaccinated. And I still wouldn't want to do that, so I would leave. But I'm sure that appeals to a lot of people to know everybody that's in that restaurant has been vaccinated for whatever good that does i don't know it sounds like you could still spread yeah and that's the thing we again we aren't scientists uh on this on this show but i think that from what my understanding is you know the vaccine is going to help you it's going to keep you out of the hospital which is a great thing for everybody it's going to help you to reduce the potential severity of any disease but i think there have been some breakthrough cases and i think it's it's going to i think that the the data preliminarily at least indicates that less people are getting it once vaccinated but there have been breakthrough cases there's been people transmitting covid that are vaccinated so again it's hard to say what the actual benefit to the individuals in in that place are as far as not catching covid from someone uh but but there is a, a public interest to to the the mass vaccination of individuals and i guess the counter argument to that is the the people who say you know, they don't necessarily trust the vaccine for whatever reason, whether it be that it's only got conditional approval. And I think that's that's a thing that a lot of people cling to. And I think that's a thing that's going to go away sooner rather than later. And you're going to see full FDA approval. And at that point, I think you're really going to see an uptick in people mandating these vaccines and, and more of these vaccine passports, whether you think that's a good thing or whether you think that's a bad thing. I think it's a reality and I think it's something we're going to see. It seems like to me it almost have to be a national or like international effort. You know, if like North Carolina, it, you know, comes out and says, hey, we're going to require these for any bar or restaurant. You know, I don't know that North Carolina has enough infrastructure or, you know, wherewithal to put that together. I just don't see how it it comes alive, you know, and then uh, I don't know. You what just, does it look like? That's what I'm, I'm with you. What does it look like? I feel like I could go and print up. I got vaccinated with a line inside. You know, I, I just it seems like. With no standardization of it, how how is the guy at the bar, how's your waiter or the guy at the door going to be able to identify the veracity of your vaccine? Yeah. You know, I, I just don't understand. That's what that's something that's got to be figured out. And there's a lot of resistance to it. So how do you figure it out amongst the resistance? Well, I think even people again, I'm I'm vaccinated and I don't I don't think I would like that. You know, I, I think there's a lot of I think there's more people against that idea, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of history uh, that indicates 
you know, requiring people to present papers to enter a building or a public space. Generally, history has shown that not to necessarily be a great thing. Um, and I, and I, again, I think the argument that a lot of people make, we're, we're very apolitical on this show. We don't take necessarily an opinion one way or another. Uh, but, but we can report on what we hear as far as what people's resistance to those ideas are. And I think a lot of people think that's a slippery slope. And, and where does that end? And if the government does obtain that control, at what point do they cede that control? Or does it just grow from there? And then the counter argument of it is, is the people who think it's for the public good and it's a necessity and it's a good thing. Um, and, and it's, it's, amazing how passionate each side of that that coin is because you've got equally passionate individuals on both sides of that yeah it's just and it's you know it's one of the things we haven't been doing it on our show today but one of the things we like to do is kind of look at how things get reported in the in the national and the local media and kind of you know we've said it before you really can't get your news from one source you know it's really almost like a part-time job to actually you know if a study comes out on covid you kind of got to read three different people reporting on it and then maybe even the actual study to actually figure out what's going on it's amazing and it's gotten so much more difficult and and personally i've seen i've seen articles that have downplayed the you know severity of the delta variant as far as how it affects individuals i've seen and then literally the next click it's an article about how it's the worst and there's 50 children in the hospital a day and it's so difficult to really look and discern these things and it gets more difficult every day um and we could do a whole episode on how tough it is to really know what is what and and talk about you know deep fake videos have you seen the deep fake videos they're doing now that technology is, is absolutely terrifying and there's just so much potential for this as the technology grows and as you see disinformation campaigns what do you really do man I don't know. It's gonna be. It's gonna be tough. It, it's gonna be tough, and it's gonna. We're gonna be dealing with this. We're gonna be dealing with COVID for a while. It looks like, but we're also gonna be dealing with the fallout from it and the distrust and uh, of media and. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you do. We're not offering a lot of answers today on the outlaw law. I don't think there is an answer because I think all of this has been politicized already. And there's no real way to unpoliticize it because, again, you've got it's a hot button issue and you've got extremely passionate people on each side of the aisle. And you're not going to you're not going to calm any of those people down. I don't think you're going to I only think they're going to get a little bit more fired up. So, yeah, a bleak outlook. I, I wasn't trying to be depressing, yeah, but I'm <laughs> I'm kind of depressed now. This uh, this segment took a took a took a turn took for a the worst. Turn. Yeah. Well, that was sad. Uh, We'll be back and we'll try to perk you back up. Welcome back to The Outlaw Lawyer. I've tried to come back in with a lot of energy because we just left off on a pretty sad note. Uh, I feel good now, though. I feel good. I'm I'm just right back on track, so... We're going to talk a little bit about how you vet your attorney, uh, how you assess how what what kind of a fit your attorney is for you, and how to kind of vet and look at whether the attorney that you're talking to, some questions that you should ask that will just give you an idea of what to expect and what to look for, and and just some personal things we've learned in our own practice where if we were looking at hiring an attorney, what we would look for in that situation. 
So if you're looking to hire an attorney, something important is, has happened. You know, usually you're not, you know, you need, you need a, an attorney to help you close your real estate transaction, your refinance, you're ready to get a will, you've gotten a traffic ticket, somebody's suing you, you got a breach of contract, you got a bad contractor, you know, something like that's going on. So usually when you're searching for an attorney, you know, something has happened, you've got some, some kind of time constraints. Obviously, everybody's budget conscious. You don't you don't need to hire the uh, most expensive attorney in North Carolina to handle your your will if if that's what it is, you know. Um, but some when you need to, when you need to hire an attorney, you need a legal opinion, and you need it fast. And I think step one before we get to what questions you're going to ask that attorney, your first step is just going to be doing your own research on these people. You're going to be looking at. What is their online reputation? Uh, how long have they been in practice? You know, how are they local to your area? Usually, if you've got an attorney who is local to your area that's been in practice for several years, that's a, a good indicator that they've been able to stick around. They've had, you know, they haven't necessarily had issues with the bar. They've stayed in practice. They've they've been relatively successful. But you're going to do your own research and you're going to look into these people before you even get to the point where you can ask these questions. Because the reality of the situation is, anytime you need to talk to an attorney and ask them a question. I would say the vast majority of the time outside of a few contingent fee related situations, you're going to be paying a consult fee. So you're going to be paying some some money to even get to the point where you can talk to these individuals. But once you do talk to these individuals, I think it's important to to not necessarily go in locked in on them. And that's where these questions kind of come into play. Some things that you can just kind of ask to, again, get a feel and decide whether you should you know, feel good about this and spend more money with this individual or whether you should keep shopping around for the right fit. And I think most reputable firms, I mean, you can get online and their websites will have their bios and, and so you, and you can look at the bar, the bar will, you can listen to the radio show every Saturday <laughs> at right. four o'clock. The, uh, so you'll, you know, in, in our, in our internet age here, you can probably do a lot of sleuthing and get a lot of information, but Joe, I will tell you, I do not trust I do not trust online reviews as much as you do. I don't. I'm not saying I trust them, but what else do you do? You go. I mean, what do you? What, what other option do you necessarily have? I'm not saying to rely on the online review, Josh Whitaker. I'm saying to compile all the information you have available and make the determination from the totality of everything that you look at. So yes, we'll weight the online reviews at a one on scale of ten. <laughs> well, I was going to tell you, I've had, I've had. There's people when you when you have a business and you have a web presence, you know, there's people that reach out to you, uh, and one of the things that you have people reach out to you, some kind of, uh, you know, like uh, leave you reviews, right? So a lot of these places can pay for, pay for online reviews, which is something we would. I've never thought of even remotely doing. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of drawbacks. So, uh, caution with your reviews, but but use all the t- use all the information available to you. So, let's say you have not relied on the reviews, you have done your research otherwise. You're sitting down with this attorney, you've paid a consultation fee. Uh, I think the that what depending on whatever that matter is that you're talking to them about, I, I think one of the first questions I would ask is. Is this something that you practice exclusively? And if not, what percentage of your practice would you say is dedicated to that? Yeah, you want to make sure your attorney has experience, and and hopefully you can figure that out from a a website or or what have you. But, yeah, you're going to want to know that your attorney's handled this before, and so they can kind of tell you what they've seen. They can give you their educated opinion on your topic. Exactly. And so in addition to that, uh, maybe you should ask this question first. This is is maybe the most important consideration, but – 
How do you get paid? How are you going to be getting paid in this matter? Is there going to be a retainer? Is that retainer going to be refundable? Uh, is it a flat fee? Is it something you'll bill hourly? What is your hourly rate? Uh, and I think it's important to also, in that process, you need to get details about what that attorney will consider a billable hour or what how it quantifies a billable hour are they going to hit you for an hour for talking to them for five minutes on the phone every attorney is going to handle those situations differently and the more clarification and understanding you can get about that up front the less confusion and sadness that you will have down the line yeah just like in our contractor segment when you retain an attorney uh, when you've met with them and you've asked your questions and you've decided that you want to retain that attorney it should be very clear how that attorney is going to get paid um, again, like like Joseph said, what what what's going to be billable? Uh, what will I owe you for? How will I know what you build? Like those are all very great questions. And just like your contractor, your attorney, that should all be written down. Absolutely. And in addition to that, I think it's important to whatever your matter is, and this doesn't apply to everything. This applies more in a litigious situation or something where you're looking at potentially suing someone. I would ask that attorney to to kind of predict the outcome, give you an idea of what they expect, and just get a feel of whether they're going to level with you or whether they're just going to blow smoke and continue to rack up these billable hours when there's literally no hope for you. And I would hope I would hope any attorney. I know we we do at our firm. We I we like to level with people. I treat everybody. If I consult with you. I'm going to treat you just like I would treat a friend or a family person. Like, I'm going to give you my honest, hey, here's what I've seen happen. Um, No attorney can predict exactly what will happen, especially in litigation, right? You can never predict what a judge will do, and you're not supposed to. You're not ever supposed to tell anybody, I 100% guarantee you will win this case. So that's your first red flag. If you get the, (laughs) I will 100%. And I I do the same thing where you, anytime there's litigation involved, the first thing I'm going to stress is the literal unpredictability of it. And I think it's a reasonable response to say, well, this is what the law says, and this is generally how it would be applied. But again, when you're talking a judge and the involvement of a judge or, or, or the involvement of a jury, then there's a lot of wiggle room there. There's a lot of gray area. And so, you know, you're, again, you should you should feel I think just even a basic not even a, you should feel comfortable with your attorney you know you should you're in the same room as your attorney during your consult and you should feel you should have a good vibe about them. don't be creeped out if you're creeped out by your attorney that's your again as that's your that's your next red flag so you know these are just a few things you can do and these are a few tips I think and it's a feel thing like you said that vibe assess the vibe ask the questions and and go from there well Joe I think that's all good advice um again we here at the outlaw lawyer we do this show to reach out to our listeners Uh, if you have any questions or concerns for us you have something you want us to talk about we'd love to focus a segment or a show on topics that interest people who are listening so you can reach us at 1-800-659-1186 that's 1-800-659-1186 that number again is set up to take a message so if you leave a message please give us contact information so we can reach back out to you you can also text that information. Uh, you can text us a message at 1-800-659-1186. You can email us at questions at theoutlawlawyer.com. And then we live on social media as The Outlaw Lawyer. Joe, I've enjoyed sitting down with you. I enjoyed it as well. We'll see you next week. Lawyers 
hosted by an attorney licensed to practice law in North Carolina. Some of the guests appearing on this show may be licensed North Carolina attorneys. Discussion of this show is meant to be general in nature, and in no way should the discussion be interpreted as legal advice. Legal advice can only be rendered once an attorney, licensed in the state in which you live, had the opportunity to discuss the facts of your case with you. The attorneys appearing on the show are speaking in generalities about the law in North Carolina and how these laws affect the average North Carolinian. If you have any questions about the content of this show, contact us directly.